Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambhutasa aparuta de sangamatasa tawaraye sorabanta bamunchantu satang Well, this afternoon I've been invited to give the Sunday talk, and uh, and already Ajahn Amaro has said all that needs to be said. <laughs> Where it is, <laughs> but. Uh, Interesting, like to understand the use of language because you know our own native tongues, the language that we learn from uh, from our parents, from our original society, is uh, you know what we we pick it up when we we think we understand how to use it and and we think we know it, but. Uh, as we get older, you know, we find we just take for granted our use, the way we think or speak, say, with the English language. And uh, the way it is isn't, you know, notice that it's merely a statement or a pointing. It's not a description of anything. It's not about how anything should be or ought to be or shouldn't be, but it's not a, a kind of passive resignation uh, either, but it's a, a noticing the present moment uh, as is like this. And this, this way of using this simple statement is um, for those who are interested in Dhamma and developing insight, it's, it's how we allow things to be what they are without our continuous interference with with our thinking process, uh, with our ideas of how things should be or shouldn't be, or whether we like them or don't like them, or agree or disagree. Uh, most of us are educated to, to uh, we, we all know, most of us, I assume everybody here knows how things should be. And, <laughs> Or how we would like them to be, or want them to be, and uh, and we also are very much aware of how we don't want them to be, how they shouldn't be. But the way it is, is is a is a pointing at at this moment right now. We're all sitting here in the temple. It's like this. It's not saying that it should be anyway, but it's like this, and that brings us back to the present. You know, we're suddenly observing. You know, the, you're sitting, your body is sitting like this, breathing, your your mind, your mental state, your emotional condition of this moment is like this. And notice it's not, it's not, it's just pointing, it's not a description or making a statement about anything, but it's a useful term to observe. And, you know, the, like the, when you, uh, realize the Buddha never ever asked why things are the way they are. 
Why am, why am I like this? Why do I get angry? Why do I feel fear? Why am I afraid of ghosts? Why does the world have to be like this? Uh, and it's not, he never asks why, he's just pointing to the way things are, to phenomena. Phenomena is like this, it's changing. It's a Nietzsche dukkha anatta. It's, it's impermanent, changing, unsatisfying in itself because it has no sustainability. You can't, even the best conditions can't sustain themselves on that level of being the best. And then it's non-self. It's not something that, that, that we think it is. When we, we think our body is myself, this is my own body, then that's, that's a condition I create. I didn't create my ego, the sense of me. Robert Jackman was what my mother named me. Tomato Biku is what my Upachaya named me. <laughs> and so these names came after I was born. And then the, the, this pointing to the way things are is, is all we need to know, that all conditions are impermanent. Now that sounds quite too simple to be true, because when you when you look at the scriptures, you know, the Trivitika is uh, huge. It's like this, and uh, <clears throat> I think uh, there's so much to learn about Buddhism, you know, and it's so complicated. You've got the the suttas and the Vinaya, and then you've got the commentaries and the Abhidhamma, and it goes on and on into, you know, an endless uh, proliferating condition uh, and, and words and concepts and so forth that when we look at it from that level, it, it looks very complicated. But when you're practicing meditation, when you're, when you're doing the bhati-bhata or the practice of the Four Noble Truths, it's, it's about ultimate simplicity because Ultimately, the Buddha isn't making any statement about the quality or how things should or shouldn't be, but pointing to the way they are. And so we can use this wherever we are, in whatever state of mind we're in, whether we're healthy or sickly, young or old, male or female. I mean, it's not a matter of shoulds or ought to or shouldn't, but it's the way it is. So notice our culture, we're interested in ourselves, of why do, why do I have these problems? Why, why does the world have to be like this? Why can't everybody just get along? Why can't people just love each other instead of killing each other? <laughs> and why, why, why? You know, it's like a, a child, you know, a little boy or girl, when they're growing up, they're always asking why? And, um, and then the Buddha isn't interested in why. So our way of practice then is just observing, noting the, the, the changingness of the conditions that one is experiencing in this moment. It's not, it's not like grasping the idea of change and, and then aligning or, you know, thinking you, you understand impermanence because you understand the word. That's not it. It's, it's the, Invitation to observe change. 
And that what what Sati Sampatanya allows us to do, mindfulness, clear comprehension. Sati is, uh, is our ability to center ourselves in the present, here and now. It's like this. Sampatanya is is the kind of ability to apperceive, to to know perception that is that is present in consciousness at this time is like this. Whatever it might be, it can be an emotion, you know, like a strong emotion or just a, a, a confusion, doubt, worry. So much of modern life is about worry, anxiety, doubt, insecurity, not knowing what to do, what's wrong. <clears throat> And then we have the more strong passions like anger, aversion, hatred, and strong uh, emotions of, of greed, wanting the best, the highest quality, uh, sexual desire, wanting to, to always get caught up into to sexual fantasies and, and longings, desire for pleasure, desire for excitement, desire for adventure, romance. <clears throat> now, oh, our, our way of relating to all this is not that we, we don't have these desires, but we are observing them. So th this is a statement that we're not desire. No matter how many desires you have, they're really not, they're just desires. They come and go. And if, if, you, if you don't reflect on the way they are, then you're constantly juggling your mind, you know, thinking these are, I shouldn't have these longings, these desires, I shouldn't feel anger, I shouldn't hate people, I shouldn't feel jealous, I shouldn't be frightened, you know, like for men we, we like to appear brave, at least my generation, I'm from the old Luddite period of, of Neanderthal, <laughs> and and it's a kind of macho generation, you know, where men, boys don't cry, and, and you have to appear, you know, like you, you're not weak and wishy-washy. <clears throat> and uh, you, you play, you learn how to, to sustain or think you're doing an ability to, to create the illusion of not being frightened. <clears throat> but fear is 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 a primal. Uh, uh, emotion. I mean, if, if we didn't have fear, we wouldn't we wouldn't last very long. You know, it's it, it's a necessary emotion. There's a lot to be afraid of. I mean, considering what life is like on this planet, you know, just how how delicate your human body is. You know, it's a it doesn't have a tough hide like a rhinoceros or anything. You're easily damaged, bruised. You know, we we're very vulnerable. We don't have great ability to run that fast. Even Usain Bolt gets injured now, and and I don't know if he could outrun a gazelle or anything like that. So I mean, we we've got our limitation within the human form. <clears throat> Monkeys can swing from trees and climb up and run away from things, but. You know, I've never been able to really do that very well, even when I was young. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
So the, the you know, recognize that that we are. There's a lot, you know, that could happen. Just natural catastrophes. It's not like you're neurotic or there's something wrong with you for being frightened. It's just to recognize that when the conditions arise, you're not frightened all the time. It's not a permanent state of mind, but when the conditions for it are there, are here, then you, this is what you're feeling. When the conditions for anger or aversion arise, this is, this is the, this is the result, what we call anger. And, uh, for greed, when the conditions for greed, you, there's this desire for something you don't have. And then the desire to get rid of things. Oftentimes we have thoughts, emotions that we don't want and we want to get rid of them. So I just found it very uh, helpful to, to, to really uh, investigate, observe, not from the position of personal identity with desire, but to observe desire as an object in consciousness. Dunha. <clears throat> Dunha is the Pali word for what we translate into English as desire. <clears throat> and Dunha is like desire in English always has kind of pejorative connotation. You know, as you say someone has a lot of desires, you're not exactly flattering them. You know, not, it's not a, a virtue to be a person with a lot of desires. But desire can be even virtuous, you know, desire to be really good, desire to help all sentient beings, desire to, you know, it can be very altruistic, <clears throat> as well as, uh, you know, just desires for power and control and, and that kind of thing. So these desires are to be observed, you know, the way they are. They are the way they are. Desire is like this. And so the way it is, is, is not a statement about desire, the quality or the quantity, but the recognition that at this moment, uh, desire for sensory pleasures like this, desire for becoming something, like so many meditators, people that practice meditation, want to become stream enterers or, or gain, have good concentration, want to get somewhere, want to have a high level of samadhi and so forth, the desire for very good things. And then there's a desire to get rid of your crazy mind, your monkey mind, the mind that rattles on and, and disrupts your practice or the 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 uh, bad memories that arise or whatever desire to get rid of them. But what is desire then? It it's an energy. It comes, it arises, and it ceases. And then then I always ask myself, can desire no desire? Is it a desire that I'm saying the way it is is the desire to know desire, or we don't have to. You know, we don't have to desire desire. Desire comes and goes. It's the way it is. And our relationship to desire, to dana, is knowing it is like this, the way it is.
Like today is a beautiful day, and uh, you know, it's very privileged to, for this many people to come and celebrate an old man of 80 years old. <laughs> and uh, it, uh, you know, it's an opportunity to, to offer dana, you know, you've been incredibly generous in so many ways, the lay communities, you know, are come here to make offerings to the Sangha. And that, that's, uh, say, if it's based just on desire, you know, to, to get something out of it, you know, do you, do you come to make merit so that the next life you'll be born in a higher place? Well, that's, that's giving dana or, offerings with a desire to be rewarded in the future. But we can observe that. That's desire, wanting to do something now and then maybe in the next life I'll be reborn as in, a, in one of the higher realms, you know, like I wouldn't mind being born in a Brahma realm or even in the to sit realm wouldn't be so bad, be better than this realm, I think. Because <laughs> this realm, you've got to deal with the human body, which is, you know, and Dusita Deva, you know, has an ethereal body. They never have to urinate or defecate or have to deal with the unpleasant side of, of the physical world. You have ethereal bodies. And I don't really know enough about them to, to have strong views about whether they have such problems of indigestion or... <laughs> but it does, you know, in ways that we think, you know, if you're stuck with a human body like this, then it, it does seem like a, a <coughs> And the devas don't cough even, you know. <laughs> but in terms of Dhamma practice, enlightenment, seeing things as they are, breaking through the delusions of conditioned phenomena, it's considered this human birth is the, the most auspicious one because it's not good enough. We have a lot of deva qualities. You know, we like refinements and ethereal experiences and, uh, you know, we have a sense for, 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 you know, beauty, love of beauty and things like this. So that we have that that longing, maybe, to live in a realm of refinement and beauty, um, which is, which we, you know, we maybe try to recreate as a human being, why we want to get so much money and, and have a, a beautiful home and so forth, to, to make our life as refined and as pleasant as possible for these human forms. <clears throat> but inevitably, you know, being human, having a human body is like this. It's not a deva's body. It's more like an animal. 
the animal's body, but our ability to reflect on it, to observe, to be the knower of it rather than the owner of it. <clears throat> like the unenlightened, unaware human being, fully committed to the idea that the body is me. You know, that it goes un unquestioned. And we have passports. And last year, you know, I was uh, in, in Thailand at uh, Wat Nha Chat, and I went to the to have my meal in the salai, and during that time somebody came into my kuti and stole, took my both my passports. I have British and American passports. They took my Baisuti, my monk's passport, and they took my iPad. and my iPod. <laughs> so when I got back, I was only gone for about an hour and a half, and I came back and, and uh, they, uh, somebody left, the, the, one of the doors was unlocked, and so the thief got in and managed to take all this stuff away. And, uh, <clears throat> But it didn't have to break in, there was no sign, visible sign. And, you know, when I went back to Kuti, then I suddenly noticed, uh, where's my iPad? <laughs> and then I looked for him, I thought, my must be stolen. And then I looked in the desk and my passport, they were both together in a, in a case and they were taken. <clears throat> so then, you know, passports are what, you know, get, verify that we are somebody, you know, and 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 then uh, I have a birth certificate. I found this uh, came back here uh, last May for the elders meeting, and I found uh, my birth certificate. That I've got proof. Actually, I didn't. I I think I sent it on to Thailand, but I have the proof that I was born eighty years ago. It's a certified birth certificate with my footprint on it. Uh, you know, my feet have grown considerably. <laughs> and so, you know, I felt, you know, it's good to know that I'm actually legal, recognized human being in this society, proof that I was born. <clears throat> and then, but then for a few days in Thailand, uh, not having passports and so forth, as nobody didn't have a a month's identification booklet. And you know, I'm in a country I'm not a citizen of either. And uh, who am I? I mean, in some ways, it's kind of a relief, you know, not to have all this stuff. You know, I wouldn't you know think it'd be free from passports, identification cards iPads and so forth, all the stuff <clears throat> that tend to affirm that I am this body, I am this person, I am this uh, age, and I am this nationality, I am this gender, I am, I exist. And of course all these, these have the uh, <laughs> 
something wrong, I said, Ajahn <laughs> His thermo flask exploded on it. <laughs> And how much, you know, you, we had a time now where there's this mass media ad advertisements and so forth. Everything makes you very self-conscious, you know, what you look like. And there's so many worries about obesity and, and how to maintain a slim appearance and a beautiful complexion and, uh, you know, how to uh, d decrease the aging look, you know, how to have cosmetic surgery so you don't look as old as as your body is, you know, because uh, the society doesn't really like uh, old people that much. And, you know, we're not glamorous anymore or all that attractive. So, you know, we worship beauty and youth and the, the more pleasant side of our existence. But it's, but recognize that, that this is just the worldly uh, belief in that we are this human body, this is me. And uh, how many of you were really just satisfied, totally content with what you look like? Or, you know, how many people can really be thoroughly content and appreciate their appearance? When they look in the mirror. And I've known people, you know, who, who, very beautiful people who, uh, you think that, well, they're so beautiful, they have everything, uh, you know, that everyone else would like, and yet you ask them, they're not content. The nose isn't exactly right. <laughs> Michael Jackson was a good example, you know. <laughs> Continuous attempts to to have, to change one's appearance to what one would like. <clears throat> well, this is this is not a reflective mind, is it? It's it's a it's a mind that we're we're lost into, wanting to become, get something, uh, change something, stop the aging process, live forever, not die, uh, have a beautiful complexion and, and all the rest and and be attractive and beautiful forever are wishes and desires that are common to human society anywhere. But that's not the way it is, is it? It's, life is not like that. And it never will be, even with the most uh, advanced uh, abilities with cosmetic surgery, plastic surgery and modern medicine, because that's not the way it is. That's not, the sankharas aren't permanent. You can't, they're not sustainable. Their nature is change. And so the Buddha was pointing at change rather than to a perfect perception or a perfect ideal of how uh, some condition should be. Well, this allows us in a society that's that's determined to make you discontented. Let's look at modern advertisements and 
advertising and that wherever you go, there's always something better than what you have on offer. You know, and they're always producing new versions where last year's model uh, isn't as good as the, the new, the new improved one. What does this do to the mind? You know, what, what, what does it do to you when you observe these things, these, these beautiful ad advertisements that uh, want you to buy the latest product, is it creates a desire or discontentment with, with what you have. But we can observe, then we, you know, it's not a ma like being a samana, like being samanas, we, our aim is not to be caught in that momentum or to get perspective on it anyway. It's not that, you know, we are so good that we don't have uh, longings to look beautiful and so forth. It's not that these, these kind of desires never rise in our mind, but our relationship to to these desires changes from the ignorant uh, reaction to the wise understanding. Desire is like this. It, it, and you're observing change rather than the quality or the condition of the desire. Now to observe change then is, is, isn't personal. It's, we have to let, let the sense of a self, an ego, uh, an identity with the body, with the conditions that we're experiencing, let go of that in order to have the perspective on them of whatever is present now is changing. So this is, this is the attitude, this is the way of insight meditation. It's a way of changing from becoming, trying to get something, some idea, some thought, some perception you have of what you'd like, to observing the desire for becoming, for, for becoming a stream enterer, becoming an Aron, becoming an expert meditator, becoming, and getting rid of your defilements and your <clears throat> bad habits and so forth. When we talk about good and bad, then from the personal level, you know, about right and wrong, good and bad, high and low, then we're, we're, we're judging, isn't it? This is good, this is bad. And that's the, this good, bad, right, wrong. These are the conditions that we create with thinking, with language. You know, we, it's about phenomena. It's about the quality of phenomena. So this is good. It's about phenomena, about a phenomena. This is a good thing, is, is about something. Without uh, really noticing or understanding that whatever it is, no matter how good it is, it's in the process of change. It's a Nietzsche. Or bad, uh, a bad condition, ugly condition, nasty condition. See, these words, bad, ugly, nasty, are judgments, aren't they, about the quality of the condition itself. And, and this is fair enough in terms of this mortal realm that we're living in, this good, bad, right and wrong, in terms of 
the quality, but in terms of Dhamma, good, bad, right and wrong, are perceptions we create, judgments we make about phenomena. And it, and it comes out of, you know, when we're just stuck on that level, then we tend to uh, make judgments about ourselves, uh, about others, about the society we live in, about the world. So that's about, you know, why, why does the world have to be like this? And try to, try to answer that question. Why does, uh, why does the United Kingdom have to be like this? Why does England have to be like this? Why can't the Scots be just content and not want independence. <laughs> why not be just content? The Commonwealth countries, why, not they just, why can't they just be content with being Commonwealth and be content in the United Nations? Why can't Russia and the United States, why can't they get along and love each other? <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice if President Obama and President Putin would hold hands <laughs> and <laughs> hug each other and take a course in Vipassana <laughs> together? <laughs> I mean, you know, this would be very nice, you know. <laughs> That's not the way it is. <laughs> At this moment, anyway, you know, they're busy. The Americans are condemning the Russians. They love to condemn the Russians anyway, and <laughs> vice versa. And this is, you know, the why? Why is it like this? And then you can, you can make a good case for either side. You know, whose fault is it? And of course, it depends how you're culturally programmed to <laughs> determine which side you're on. Uh, but. Uh, <clears throat> In any case, it's the way it is. War, uh, disagreement, uh, competition, uh, judgments, con condemnations, revenge, all these are, are part of human history, aren't they? They're what makes, makes uh, uh, you know, what we go to movies, why we like cinema and see things about men fighting, you know, boxing, fighting, killing, uh, sexual activities are all exciting to us. And, and it's not about, you know, it's about adultery and things like this that are even more exciting than having a nice story about a man and woman falling in love and living happily ever after without any problems. Imagine how boring that would be. <laughs> A movie where the boy, beautiful girl and the handsome boy fall in love, their parents are totally agreed, everybody's happy, they have no obstructions, no problems, they're both very healthy and the society is supportive in every way and they get married and they're faithful to each other and live happily ever after. And that would be rather boring, wouldn't it? It wouldn't make much money anyway. <laughs> 
I say, well, what about a bhikkhu? You know, imagine a, a, a movie being made about a good bhikkhu who keeps all the rules and practices hard and becomes enlightened. It'd be boring, wouldn't it? But a bhikkhu who breaks all the rules, <laughs> that'd be much more interesting. <laughs> In the Thai newspapers, in Bangkok newspapers, it's not. The headlines are not about good bhikkhus practicing in the right way. It's about, if it's about bhikkhus, about the naughty ones that break the rules. <laughs> that's exciting, isn't it? Breaking rules and, and uh, you know, and um, uh, killing, fighting. These are, uh, these are all exciting uh, human uh, activities. Excitement is, you know, to observe excitement, wanting excitement, because so like monasticism is, you know, our way of life, celibacy and, and then uh, not having, not carrying money and so forth, this, is, this can be very boring. You know, we don't, you're not supposed to have romantic liaisons and so forth in your, you know, you're trying to live to this impeccable standard of the Vinaya and and then our you know we chant poly chants it's not like grand opera or rock you know not even supposed to it's supposed to, <laughs> it's supposed to do this monotone kind of chanting and uh, and so it can sound boring too <clears throat> and and then so much of you know boredom is a part of monastic life because Boredom is a condition that arises and ceases. You know, if, if uh, you know, if our, uh, you know, it's a condition that we, we don't want usually. We like to feel, uh, inter have interesting things to do or, or um, you know, feel that we're needed and have, uh, our life has a purpose. We want to feel good. We want to feel we're getting somewhere. We want, you know, so boredom then comes and we we don't want that. So we look for something interesting to do, something to distract ourselves. But many of us have actually cultivated boredom, uh, at least speaking for myself. I remember, you know, in the training years in Thailand, uh, where I was, you know, you're, at some monastery, some branch monastery, where uh, nothing much happens. You know, if you're with Lung Pan Cha, it's much more interesting because he was becoming so well known, and you meet people, and they come and go, and there's more activities. But some of the branch monasteries are really boring, <laughs> and then uh, uh, you know, because nothing much going on, and uh, and you're stuck there. Same thing, you get up the same time, get ready to go on alms round, same routine, eat at the same time, and on and so we're looking at nothing much of a change and it gets monotonous and boring. But yet that mental state is, is, is a state to observe, because it, we create it. We create that emotion, that feeling, that reaction we call boring. 
and anything we create, then we can observe it as a phenomenon, as a condition, rather than as some kind of personal quality which is good or bad, right or wrong. The, uh, the other thing that's very, that people are really interested in is consciousness. Because, say, right now, all of us are experiencing consciousness. You know, is anyone not conscious? <laughs> Raise your hand. <laughs> this is uh, uh, taken for granted, you know, the consciousness is, and yet in the Western culture, we're very much identified. The consciousness is, is in me. You know, we think that the, the body uh, is holding the consciousness. That's the Western view, that's not the Buddhist one. And so when, um, you know, when somebody's asleep, they're not conscious. Or if they're in a coma, they're not conscious. Uh, we think, you know, we believe that consciousness is when we're actually awake and thinking and can react and respond in normal ways. And then unconscious means that, you know, you're, you're not aware, you're not acting normally, you don't um, know what's going on. And then sleep consciousness, when you're in deep sleep, you don't even know. And so we, we have these various views about what consciousness is. And, but in uh, terms of the Buddha Dhamma, consciousness is, has no boundaries, not limited to, to the human form, to the brain, or to any place. And it's, and it's worthwhile to contemplate like this, to, to, see, to kind of use the word itself, consciousness, or vijnana, or jitta, in Thailand they use the word jitta a lot, and that means knowing here now, it's when we're aware, consciousness, we can recognize pure consciousness. It's not something we, we have to find, it's not something that we have to get, it's just something we don't remember, we don't know, we don't, we aren't aware of it. And yet, <clears throat> consciousness is, just because you aren't aware of consciousness doesn't mean that it, you're unconscious, does it? It means you don't know what it is, because your, your world, your sense of yourself is all built on the changing conditions, what you're feeling, what you look like, your physical body, your, your mood of the time, your position, your hopes and desires. This is the real world for most, for most people. This is reality. But say, I like, I like to think right now, just reflecting consciousness is the same for all of us. It's not like in me, and then I have a consciousness in me, and then a consciousness in Ajahn Yanarato is different. In Ajahn Jutindra's consciousness is a Ajahn Jutindra consciousness. Uh, Ajahn Sundar consciousness, they're all different, you know? That's thinking, isn't it? That's creating thoughts with the idea of consciousness. 
But consciousness isn't about an individual, it's, it's the way it is. It's here and now. And you can't find it, it's not like you, you've got to look for it, it's just waking up to it, recognizing it. So it's like sati sampantanya, this wake up, observe, rather than trying to get into a state of pure consciousness through grasping the idea that this is what you should do, you're, 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 you're grasping the idea of it. So it's not about thinking you've got to get it, but learning how to let go, how to relinquish conditioned phenomena to just be the knower of the way things are. All conditions are impermanent. Sape Sankara Anicca. And so, like after all these years of developing meditation and, and this um, way of investigating conditioned phenomena and mindfully observing the way things are, uh, you know, I find it's true, all conditions are impermanent, simple as that. <laughs> and yet that can be a hackneyed phrase, you know, like, you know, so what, you know, because on the level of an interesting idea, it might be interesting at first, but if you just grasp the concepts of all conditions are impermanent, then of course it, you know, you get bored with your own repetitive thinking and you want something more interesting to, to hold on to. <clears throat> but if you, you know, if you begin to break through the illusions, like you, the, because you understand the concept means that you understand Anicca. You understand the, the concept of Anicca, but say in a lifetime of mindfulness, you're aware of Anicca because that's what you're experiencing all the time. Because this uh, continuous inexorable changingness is going on all the time. And uh, it's not, not something that you can stop, but you can recognize. And to be able to abide in contentment and knowing of change means letting go. doesn't mean destroying or denying or repressing. It means releasing yourself from the delusions of the ego, of a, your, the sense of yourself as the human form or the personality or the emotions you have or the uh, identities and your your memories and thoughts and and habits which are can be good and bad right and wrong but our relationship now say within sangha life is is no longer we, we're in a form that's based on doing good and refrain from doing evil so our relationship to ourselves and the society we live in is based on ethics and morality on you know so we we vinaya is all about you know respecting life in general it's quite we're not in using you know our lives to delude ourselves sometimes you think well mindfulness practices well you know well we could you know commit a murder mindfully 
you could, if you want to get away with it, not get caught, you have the level of mindfulness necessary <laughs> to, to be able to murder somebody and not get caught doing it and not being punished for it. But in terms of, you know, like for monastics, uh, if we have desire to murder somebody, because <laughs> none, no, none of us would have such desire. <laughs> But uh, it means that, you know, we have, you know, our, our, our very form, uh, the robe and so forth, is our commitment to, to this form is one where we observe that desire rather than follow it or repress it, identify with it or feel guilty about it. Our relationship to Sankara is knowing rather than approving, disapproving, liking or disliking. But our relationship to the society then, one is to do good and refrain from doing bad with body and speech. So this is the way it is. And, and it's, you know, even though it's the way it is, is uh, is a simple phrase and it can be said in a kind of negative way, you know, what's the way it is, you know, what can you do about it, so what? And that's not it. It's not about just resigning yourself to negativity or depression or disappointment. Not about it. That's not the way, that's not the attitude of the way it is. The way it is, is uh, just, you know, it's an alert attention to change. Where the, the resigned attitude, negative, cynical attitude about the way, and that's the way it is, is, is not letting go. It's merely operating from, a, you know, a kind of um, disdain or cynicism. And it's still the ego, isn't it? It's still, you know, I'm, you know, I've had enough. Life is a, life sucks. And I, I mean, it's the way it is, so what can you do about it? It's not the mind of a summoner. <laughs> but the way it is, is a useful term to remind yourself when you're getting caught up in your emotional habits and worldly problems and you know people get very heated over just political issues i mean in thailand this past year you know the political issues between the red shirts and the yellow shirts i mean i've known very cool people who've been practicing meditation uh for years with uh, very good teachers and they get into the subject of yellow and red suddenly they you, something takes off, you know, they've lost it. And they go into tirades of anger and resentment and blame because they've taken sides and they know if you're a yellow shirt, the, the red is all wrong and we don't want that. And the opposite, if you're a red shirt, then the yellow. <laughs> And they're not aware of what they're doing, you know, they're not aware of what they're grasping 
and, and their mind state because they're fully committed to a belief and a reaction, emotional reaction to that condition. For most of us, it wouldn't mean nothing. Like those who aren't Thai, you know, can sit here and say, what's the problem with red or yellow shirts? Who cares? <laughs> some people like red, some people like yellow. <laughs> But for a Thai, you know, just the term red shirt can bring up strong feelings. <laughs> or, you know, being an American, you know, I was brought up in the McCarthy area, era, I was in a university, and it was dangerous to say anything positive about communism. I remember I was, I was a first year student in university, and I wrote a, a kind of, I was always kind of rebelling against this American patriotism and so I, w I wrote a paper once about uh, supporting communism and the professor told me, took me aside and she said, uh, I actually liked your paper, but I think you better be careful. <laughs> because, uh, you know, this was the time when they were arresting or condemning people who, who said anything at all positive about communism. <clears throat> so, the way to ruin somebody's career in the 1950s, absolutely ruin their career, was to spread the rumor they were a communist. And that happened quite a lot, you know, if you wanted to be, if you had a revengeful mind, you could really destroy somebody by claiming that that person was a communist and that would ruin them. Because the word communist, nobody really understood what it really meant. It just meant it was wrong and bad. <clears throat> Same with, uh, you know, religion. You're being brought up as a Christian. You know, you're brought up to think Christianity's right and the rest are wrong. So, you know, you, 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 you're thinking that somebody says, what about Buddhism? And you say, it's wrong. How do you know it's wrong? Because you don't know anything about it. Well, it's not Christian. <laughs> it's not a very intelligent way to think, but it's quite natural, isn't it? If, you, if you're conditioned to favor one thing and, and hold the prejudice against its opposite, where in the way it is, it's observing that, the, uh, the prejudices that one, one is experiencing and, the present moment, the biases we have, uh, the cultural assumptions. We all have assumptions we acquire from our cultural background. And, and they arise and cease their conditioned phenomena. But pure consciousness and awareness is not about culture. It's not about which is the best culture or which is better or worse or right or wrong. It's noticing the simplicity that the Buddha emphasized over and over again. All conditions are impermanent. What arises ceases. Anicca, vata sankara. Uh, all conditions are impermanent. And this is what, when in the Thai tradition, when somebody dies, if you notice that um, they would in Thailand, they'd invite the monks to the, the place where the corpse is, and we chant Anicca Vata Sankara, 
อุบัติวายัตมิโนอุบัติจิตวานิรุจันทีเดชังอุบัสโมสุขโอ้ very not very long chant but it's all about impermanence what is born dies what arises ceases and in its ceasing is peace you know when you allow things to cease conditions to cease then you'll begin to discern peace what real peace is consciousness is real peace it's not it's not exciting but uh, but if you're always looking for excitement and averse to boredom then you'll never notice you'll never understand you'll never realize true peacefulness or true contentment <clears throat> so I offer this for your reflection <coughs>